this episode, we dig into the weeds, the trivia, the details, talking about characters, locations, uh, motifs like coffee, pie, and donuts, and uh, getting into like rankings and screen time and all that stuff. So this is kind of fun for the people who want to deep dive into uh, the episode, picking it apart in that way. I would strongly suggest using my illustrated companion on my site, which is linked below as a kind of guide to this. It, I think having the visual is a, a good complement to what you're hearing here. Let's move on to characters. whole lot of characters introduced in this episode. There's a lot to keep track of, and we've sort of done so through the various subplots. But what I want to talk about here for a moment is how they fare in terms of screen time. Who do we spend most time with? Because it seems to an extent like we're evenly divided over the ensemble, but there are some people we see more of than others. I measured the screen time of these characters for a uh, character series that I'm doing where I do an entry on each character uh, ranked in terms of their overall screen time on the series. So I actually had these stats on hand when I started this podcast and thought it would be fun to dip into that. Number 10 for the pilot is Ed with about six minutes. You okay? Well, I know how to pick them too. Number nine is Mike with about seven minutes. Donna! What are you sneaking around for? Everybody's looking for you. Number eight is Sarah with about eight minutes. Laura, sweetheart, I'm not gonna tell you again. Number seven is Doc Hayward with about eight minutes. We're so thankful to have a daughter like you. Number six is James with about 11 minutes. I changed my mind. I'm not sorry. Number five is Bobby with about 14 minutes. Norma, I'll see you in my dream. Number four is Donna with about 17 minutes. Harriet, don't forget to brush your teeth. She's in it quite a lot. That's why I feel like she's sort of the secondary lead in a way. Number three is Cooper with about 27 minutes of screen time. Douglas Firth. Can someone get me a copy of the coroner's report on the dead girl? Now, number two is Harry Truman, the sheriff with about 33 minutes of screen time. It must have happened about this time, 24 hours ago. Even though Cooper quickly takes the lead in the investigation, he's always, uh, well, most of the time, maybe always on screen with Harry. In fact, I think the only time we see him not with Harry is before he arrives when he's in the car talking to Diane on the phone. After that, they're like a duo always in tandem, whereas, of course, Harry has a lot of early scenes on his own. So he's in it for more than a half hour of this show and actually kind of takes the lead for a little early on. The number one star of this episode... Is Laura Palmer. Good Lord, Laura. Laura Palmer. Now let me explain that. Obviously, she's not on screen for the amount of time that Harry and Cooper and the others are. Uh, she would be in the top ten if we just talked about her screen time, but she'd be like number nine um, around Big Ed and, and Doc Hayward. But when calculating Laura's time, I try to think about her presence in the show and how it actually is experienced in this pilot. And really, it's the characters talking about her. It's the, you know, the, the attention to her that makes it feel. So she's present in every scene of this, but, but often indirectly. They're dealing with a sort of a fallout from her death uh, in an indirect way. But the moments where they're actually centered on her 
I calculate as being about 41 minutes of this episode, so uh, almost half of it. Now, looking at that top 10, we can note that uh, outside of Cooper, Harry, and Laura, uh, who are established at this point as the core leads, uh, Donna tops the supporting cast, which isn't aligned with what we were talking about in the uh, discussing the subplots and the Laura stories as well, her relationship to Laura, how she kind of drives the action in this pilot in many ways. Laura, Harry, Cooper, Donna, Bobby, and James are all on screen for over 10 minutes. So that's kind of a special position for them to be in. Most of the other characters have uh, less screen time than that. And we're going to keep track going forward in the episodes who has normally over five minutes, because this is a double episode, so we've got to do twice as much. But generally, who has over five minutes of screen time in an episode? And what that says about their fluctuation in terms of importance. You know, if they have four and a half minutes, one episode, and five minutes and 10 seconds or something, we're not measuring in seconds, but, you know, something like that, then, yeah, it's it it's not that meaningful. But over time, I think the pattern is intriguing, seeing who kind of comes up, who goes down, and so forth. Here are the locations we see in this episode. Blue Pine Lodge, that's where Laura's body is found. It's the Packard household and where Harry and Josie embrace at the end of the episode. So it provides a nice bookend for everything. Uh, I don't think we see it at any point in between those two moments. Those two sequences, I should say. The sheriff's station, uh, there's a lot of interrogations going on there, some examination of evidence, and uh, we see the jail cells there as well. So it's very much like a sort of a reliable hub of activity. So much of the episode uh, happens there. And like I said, only in that last moment do we get a warmer sense of it. Uh, maybe a little bit with Lucy in the introduction where she's talking to Harry about the phone. as like a place that you can kind of sit back and contemplate. For the most part, they seem to be pretty intent on getting things accomplished. The Palmer household, uh, you know, we see Sarah and Leland focused on Laura's disappearance and then her death. So it's just a haunted house from the beginning in that sense. The Briggs house, uh, they're so square that they're kind of odd, but they seem to be a somewhat loving family. Uh, the high school, uh, we see kids wandering around until they hear the news. It's just got kind of that, that uh, it's like a laid back cool. That's the kind of teenagers you have in Twin Peaks so far. Uh, not like these sort of really super hip and ironic kids, but just kind of, you know, they're cool. They're laid back. <laughs> they're, they're not too worried about anything. Uh, you know, maybe a little uh, teen angst, but they're they're sincere. They're kind of earnest. It has that 50s feel more than an 80s feel is what I'm trying to say. The Great Northern Hotel is mostly a hub for business only at the end. We get the idea of like, oh, well, of course, it's a hotel. People stay there and visit. It's not just a conference center, you know. The native art decorating the hotel everywhere definitely adds to the vibe of the town. The Double R Diner, uh, very kind of 50s vibe to it. It seems cozy but quiet. There's some potential drama going on in that workplace with uh, Shelley and Norma. We only get that one scene there. The Johnson House is unfinished. It looks ominous on the side of the road. There's a lot of attentions and bad vibes there. The Packard Sawmill is like a big professional productive environment. Renette's Bridge is a location we see briefly with the mountains in the background as uh, Renette crosses it. Obviously, you know, it has some other name. Who knows what it is? But we think of it as Renette's Bridge because this is where we first meet this character. And what a striking shot. The rusted bridge, you know, those snow-capped mountains. I went to this area in the summer and it's 
it's interesting how lush it is. Uh, you can just see the kind of, you know, the the the, the foliage and everything surrounding it. it. It seems much less stark than it does in the pilot when they shot it in February. So that's interesting to to think about. But this is certainly a uh, uh, an iconic location. And uh, it's hard to imagine just watching it in this pilot when we would see it again, because the whole reason we're seeing it here is it's Renette crossing over the state line, uh, which is sort of geographically impossible, but that's a that's another story. Big Ed's gas farm and house uh, is a location we see where it's not entirely clear where the house is in relation to the uh, gas station that Ed works at, but it seems to be at the very... I, I always thought it was across the street, but I think it's actually next door like i think there's when he's looking off screen that's where he's looking but not totally sure but we got a, a couple scenes there in this episode the one where uh, james pulls up his motorcycle and later donna pulls up in her car and ed talks to them and then also a, a, another scene later where he's talking to uh, norma on the phone and looking out the window and seeing nadine pulling the curtain so again that that suggestion that these locations are close by each other. We got a shot of the road into town as uh, Cooper's coming in. Calhoun Memorial Hospital. These are not like quirky, offbeat locations. They feel very practical and rooted in like a real world sense of what those places would be like. The uh, mountaintop shot, or maybe it's a hilltop shot, I'm not sure, but overlooking the mountains in this beautiful valley landscape where James is sitting with his motorcycle. We see a couple scenes of this. First, when we see him next to the motorcycle after uh, Cooper has identified that that's what's in Laura's eye. And then later when they see the necklace in the train car, we get that shot of uh, James sitting there. And then we see, oh, he's holding the necklace. So, But uh, quite a, you know, shots like this, I think, do a lot for this pilot. Because really this and I suppose the train car as well, which we'll talk about in a moment... We're really getting these uh, this idea of these deep, dark woods, this kind of wilderness location that we don't necessarily get as much in the other scenes. You know, we're very much within the town itself, but here you're getting the scope of the surrounding landscape. The train car out in the woods puts to the forefront this idea of like a mix of industry and nature and nature kind of overtaking industry in a weird way, but industry also threatening nature. This is this weird mutually hostile kind of relationship, but also symbiotic. And it seems significant that that's where Lara dies at the kind of heart of the Lynchian conundrum. At the bank that uh, Cooper and Harry go to, to find Lara's safety deposit box. Uh, there's a scene in one room there off to the side somewhere where they uh, are able to look into this box. Who knows where that was shot? I'm sure probably not at a bank. But the distinctive aspect of that location is the uh, deer head with the antlers obviously resting on the desk. There's one scene at the town hall, which is a very straightforward location. Just a kind of empty hall. The, the, the wooden floor certainly adds to the effect of uh, the aesthetic of this town, I suppose. But this is certainly one of the most, I would say, straightforward locations of the uh, of the pilot. Of, of all the areas it's establishing that you sense it could play around with, the diner, the hotel, and so forth, this uh, probably offers less potential for uh, creative experimentation, let's say. There's also a location where traffic lights are swinging, uh, just kind of hanging there. 
we get a medium shot of that so we don't get much context of where it is as the lights change, or it might already be red. I can't, I can't remember in this episode. But that's worth mentioning here, even if it isn't a fully established location in its own right. It, it may be significant. And I think also uh, people have read that, and I'm not sure if there was ever a sort of confirmation of this within the pilot, or even honestly overall in the show when the creators talk about it, that this particular intersection might be where James talks about seeing Donna for the last time. She got off his, his motorcycle at a stoplight. So it's tied to that. Uh, I think he says at Sparkwood in 21. So this could be the Sparkwood in 21 intersection. The Hayward house is the warmest, most comfortable kind of house we see. It's like a nest or a cocoon. You know, we just get this sense of like sort of a happy family warm by the hearth as the whole dark, troubled world swims outside their door. There's one shot of the location, the book house, to the point where we might almost think this is where the singer is singing, but that's the roadhouse, different location with the bang bang bar sign out front. This is supposedly next door. All the motorcycles are parked out front. It's just a random shot. There was a scene in the original script that was supposed to take place in this location where somebody goes to the bar, talks to the bartender, and uh, goes to, you know, I think it's Donna looking up James or something like that. And this is the kind of bohemian location where all of these beatnik bikers are hanging out. But we don't get any of that in the in the actual pilot. This is just what was written in the script. And all we see is this weird, I almost want to call it an establishing shot, but it's not quite because, of course, as I said, like, we cut from there to the roadhouse. Very confusing, but cool little location. I like the blue neon sign on top. Must have been handmade by Lynch. And then finally, the roadhouse. As I said, very ethereal. It's the Spiker hipster bar. The latent emotion that's present throughout the episode, but somewhat restrained, I think really comes out with the music here. And I mentioned the Nightingale, but we also hear the song Falling, which is actually the theme song to the show, but with lyrics. And of course, we have the woods as sort of a general location. Other than the shot of the train car out there, that, that sort of establishing shot before we go into the dark place, this is really only entered at night, this location. We only get glimpses of it by sort of like a, almost a flashlight or a head beams of a car. We're not getting like lost in these magnificent sort of fairy tale woods. They're just like a, a presence, an off-screen kind of presence. And uh, that's that's kind of the vibe that they give. It's more a state of mind than a physical geography. We hear about this place called the Lamplighter Inn, which apparently has great cherry pie, but we don't get any real sense. You know, in the I'm a big Wind in the Willows fan, and so to sort of compare it with that, it's like uh, you know, if the the Wildwood comparison kind of speaks for itself. But the world outside Twin Peaks is like the wide world in Wind of the Willows and that it's this place that's out there beyond the civilization and it doesn't really concern us too much. We're in this microcosm of a world. Even though Twin Peaks is shown in this episode to be very interconnected, you've got the Norwegians coming to town from outside. You have all these outside presences in Twin Peaks, but yet Twin Peaks itself is the stage. Lunch was uh, $6.31 at the Lamplighter Inn. That's on Highway 2 near Lewis Fork. That was a tuna fish sandwich on whole wheat, slice of cherry pie, and a cup of coffee. Damn good food. Diane, if you ever get up this way, that cherry pie is worth a stop. Coffee, pie, and donuts are motifs that are going to be a big part of Twin Peaks. That's not too spoilery to say, I don't think. And in this episode, I've always thought that um, they introduce the donuts and they leave the pie and the coffee till 
uh, later episodes to really establish, but that's not really true. Like coffee is all over this episode. Uh, actually much more than the donuts. The donuts just get that prominent feature at the end where they're kind of foregrounded. So coffee is more of a casual thing, but there are some moments where it plays into the, the drama of it. We start off, Catherine has a cup of something on the table. It could be tea, but it's probably coffee. Pete has a thermos that's probably got coffee in it. Harry's pouring coffee at the station when Lucy interrupts him. Uh, there's a coffee pot on Sarah's table. There's a coffee pot on the Briggs counter. Coffee cups uh, all over the uh, the Double R Diner and also the Great Northern. And uh, we see Bobby drinking coffee. Uh, when James shows up at the gas station, Ed says, buy you a coffee. And James says, can't do it. Cooper mentions the lamplighter in, says a tuna fish sandwich on whole wheat, a slice of cherry pie, and a cup of coffee. So right there, the pie and coffee are already connected. And uh, his whole exchange is great. He says, or his whole little speech says, damn good food. Diane, if you ever get up this way, that cherry pie is worth a stop. So right here, there's something going on about cherry pie. Not just any pie, but cherry pie. That's the pie. And he mentions it again to Harry when he arrives in town. We see Audrey poking a hole in a styrofoam coffee cup, which kind of becomes a major plot point because it gets her, it gets the concierge distracted so that she can go in and bother the Norwegians. And when they're looking for Donna later in the episode, Coop turns to Truman for no reason and just says, get me a donut. <laughs> says something about donuts already. He's, he's hungry. And uh, we see the donuts at the sheriff's station in the end. There's 52 of them. Uh, they're piled in twos and grew in a 26 different piles. So that's how I know <laughs> wasn't that hard to calculate. And, uh, there's coconut donuts, a powdered jelly donut, frosted sugar, chocolate frosted, some kind of pastry. And, uh, Lucy mentions that there's coffee and cream or that, that there's uh D extra decaf. Cause Andy's been drinking so much caffeinated coffee lately and extra jelly for agent Cooper. So apparently they had this conversation early in the day. There's some other food featured in the episode, too, of course. Captain Crunch and Quaker Oats with fake names so that they don't get in trouble for product stuff uh, in the background when Sarah's calling out to Laura. We see Bobby and Shelly drinking from a flask. We see a golden egg atop the gas farm because it's got the goose that laid the golden eggs. Make of that what you will. We see the smorgasbord in the room with the Norwegians that Audrey is all excited about. The concierge has an apple on her desk for whatever reason. There's tea and biscuits in front of the horns when Johnny's bashing his head. Leo's drinking beer at his house. Mike and Bobby are throwing beer cans everywhere. There's beer bottles everywhere at the roadhouse. And of course, don't forget the tuna fish sandwich. Also want to mention the incidence of smoking in this uh, pilot. That's certainly a motif worth, worth uh, commenting on. First of all, we see Sarah Palmer smoking in the morning. We see her smoking several times. She's smoking in the morning when she's calling Delara. She's smoking in the uh, final scene where she's lying on the couch. So that's a, a habit that's established as being tied with her. And she's smoking while she's on the phone, calling everybody. It's clearly some sort of nervous habit. Cigarettes also feature into uh, some later scenes in the pilot as well. I think there's four other characters who are smoking at various points. So, for example, we see Audrey smoking at her locker in the high school and kind of grinning at Donna as like a mischievous thing that she's doing. We also see, um, who's the other one? Bobby smoking or no, a uh, Mike smoking actually when he goes to uh, the Hayward's house and he's calling on Donna and he's smoking outside on the porch. And then, 
uh, the uh, Doc Hayward opens the door and immediately throws the cigarette away. Like, oh, okay, man, they're 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 gonna see you there. You're not you're not fooling anybody. And uh, I think that might be it for smoking in the pilot. I I can't think of any other. Oh, uh, there is one other important scene, which is uh, Leo pulls up the cigarette and he says, "Whose cigarette is this?" to to Shelley in the uh, ashtray. And uh, she says, oh, that's, that's mine. I, I took it from somebody at the diner. He says, you only smoke one kind of cigarettes in this house. And he's obviously on to the fact that she may be cheating on him based on the cigarettes. So right there between that and Sarah smoking, and she gets the bad news about uh, Laura. Smoking is kind of presented as in, in a negative light, I would say, in this episode. Uh, even the Mike scene, too, him being disrespectful to Doc Hayward. Um you know, the only time it's presented as sort of fun and glamorous is maybe with Audrey uh, smoking in the school. And finally, tomorrow we will conclude the week of pilot coverage with my archive talking about pieces uh, while well, reading from pieces or playing clips from pieces in the past where I have discussed the pilot, offering that perspective from that time. I'm also going to include a section called Shape of the Show, where I talk about the general uh, contours of the series, things that you may want to skip over if you're new to the series, like and you, you just want it to fly totally blind. None of it is spoilers, but it gets into kind of how people think about different parts of the series, what's coming down the line, how the mystery might play out uh, without giving away any specific plot details. So I'll see you then. <laughs>